Well, good morning to all of you uh, this morning, and thank you for joining us here. Uh, we recognize in this time, uh, with all of us sequestered to our homes and all that stuff, you could be doing something else, uh, but you have joined us this morning, and I am thankful that you are here. Uh, my prayer is that you would hear not only the Lord speaking to you this morning, uh, but that your lives would be encouraged, edified, and equipped uh, by the power of the Spirit at work in your lives. What a time uh, to be alive right now. I could never have imagined the year we are having right now. I could not have anticipated it. And we are four months in, and this is not what we were looking forward to at all. Back in January, many of us had looked forward to doing different things in the year ahead. Uh, a variety of plans. We all had plans. Plans for things like self-improvement, a vacation, uh, finishing up school, graduating properly. Some of us are graduating uh, just being told, hey, you passed, and that's kind of it. And many other plans we had that seem now to have just come to ruin or just not possible right now. But now we look ahead uh, with an air of uncertainty about almost everything, and it has all come to a grinding halt, and we're kind of just stuck. Uh, and we're, as I mentioned, sequestered to our homes, and we're waiting patiently, and maybe not so patiently, to hear some good news about maybe when this should end or, or anything, really, at this time, because it all just seems like, what is going on? I don't know uh, what the longing of your heart is this morning, uh, but many around our world are simply longing for things just to go back to the way they were. Uh, if we could just get back to before all this happened, that would be great. Things will be uh, as they were. Uh, but I'm fairly certain, uh, at least for the church, speaking to the church, going back uh, to the way it was might not even be the best option or possible uh, at this juncture. There are times throughout Scripture where passages talk about not looking back. Uh, prominently think of, of Lot's wife when she's told to flee as they were running from Sodom and Gomorrah and to not look back. And she ends up looking back and she turns to salt. Israel looked back numerous times throughout their history uh, at all the things that they wished they could have had that were before, uh, and there was always consequences that followed uh, that kind of posture. Paul himself even writes in Philippians 3 about forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. So with eyes forward, we ask the question, God, as leader of the church, where are you taking us? Where are things headed this is the same question uh, in the Old Testament that the people of God asked inwardly as they were sort of confused. They were in the wilderness, they were saved uh, from Egypt, and they're wandering around, and they're a little bit confused about where things are headed. And so inwardly, they were asking that question, and quite often outwardly, uh, they were demanding an answer to that question with groans and complacency about the direction of where Moses and Aaron and God was taking them. As if to say, this is not what we signed up for when we said, God, help us get out of Egypt. This is not what we signed up for. And perhaps this is where you find yourself to, God, I have asked for a lot of things, but not this. This is not what I wanted for my year, for 2020. But as it so often happens, when God moves, things begin to change. When God moves, stuff does not remain the same. And for Israel and Egypt, it started with a rescue mission. As I mentioned earlier, this cry for help, God, save us. And so it starts with a rescue mission and a miraculous intervention. God's people pleading for help, begging for freedom from oppression. And God hears their sorrow and their cries and their groaning. 
And he answers powerfully. God still plans to make his covenant promise to his people come to fruition. He has not forgotten. And on their way to lay claim to that promise, they got lost in the wilderness. This is not lost in the directional sense like they were, they were lost uh, in that sense. But they would lose sight of things often. God would show up, remind them who he was, maybe provide a thing for whatever it was they needed at the time. And reminding them who he was, and then they would get back on the road. God, we need your help. What's going on? God shows up, provides, back on the road. Rinse, wash, repeat. And this happens numerous times uh, with them all along the way, and occurs most often when they felt that a need they had was not being met. God, what are you doing? You know what we need, and yet here we are having to ask you, crying out for help, groaning and complaining that you would provide for that need. The particular need that I want to focus on, at least for this morning, uh, is the need of hunger, as we look particularly at Exodus chapter 16. Here they begin to experience some hunger pains, as God has saved them from Egypt's grip. And to give some context before we get into Exodus 16, uh, at this point in Israel, as I mentioned, they've been rescued from Egypt, miracle. In chapter 13, they've been following God's leading by a cloud by day and a fire by night, miracle. In 14, they have crossed the Red Sea, miracle. In 15, they were wandering in the wilderness and were thirsty. They come upon some water, but the water is bitter, and they complain. God makes the water sweet, and they drink, miracle. Then they come to a place called the Leem, and we read now in chapter 16, verses 1 and on, and this is what it says. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It has been about two and a half months since their journey from Egypt. Two and a half months of seeing and receiving God's provision. Two and a half months to trust his faithfulness. And once again, a need arises. A valid one to be sure. Hunger is a valid need. But again, rather than simply asking the God who has provided for them this whole entire journey, they grumble and complain and feel like God is holding out on them. This shouldn't surprise us, actually, in our current context, as it's only been about two and a half months since COVID-19 started and we've been quarantined, and I have been hearing a lot of grumbling and complaining in our world. So maybe we can't judge Israel too hard on this one, uh, because we're guilty of that as well. But here we see them crying out for some sense of relief. And by the, by the way, this isn't just a few people. This isn't just a couple people of Israel. In verse 2 it says, The whole congregation grumbled against Moses and Aaron. It must have been awful to be on the receiving end of that. Could you imagine a whole congregation coming down on a pastor or a support team and just telling him, Here's all the things you aren't doing for us. You need to do what we are asking. They had no solution. They had no power to even 
do anything about the problem. And so God lays out a plan for Moses in verses 4 to 7. And this is what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. God provides for them in this crazy, miraculous situation where the passage describes it as bread from heaven. But it wasn't provided with some measure uh, freely. It came with some discipline. God was not pleased with their grumbling and continuous complacency on this journey. Rather than reflect on all that God has done from beginning, from the point they got out of Egypt to where they are right now, rather than looking back and saying, hey, God has been faithful. All they can think about and focus on is what they want, what they need, and perhaps a sense of entitlement made the demand because they felt they deserved it. The complacency was an offense to God because they could or maybe would not fully trust him. Like walking out on a frozen lake or stepping on a pile of eggshells, these people were taking all of their steps with apprehension, uncertainty, and a big lack of trust. Kent Hughes in his commentary uh, says this about that situation. This is why God always takes our complaints personally. He knows that when we grumble about our personal circumstances, our spiritual leaders, or anything else, what we are really doing is finding fault with him. We are complaining about what he has provided or not provided. A complaining spirit always indicates a problem in our relationship with God. And these people, boy, did they complain. And this was their biggest problem all throughout the Old Testament. Their relationship with God was not a two-way street. Their, their problem was it was like God was only there to meet every need and demand they had, not because of a relationship, but because of an agreement. You promised to take care of us, so do it. And God provides sure, and they don't, they don't act like that the whole time. There are moments where they come to the realization that, man, God is good. But more often than not, it is not a reciprocal relationship. It is often God stepping in, intervening, rescuing, setting them free. And God provides for them constantly. But in this scenario, he does so with some stipulations in order to give them an opportunity to trust and to grow as a people. As we read on, we find God actually carries out the plan. He said, this is what we're going to do, and he ends up doing it. And in verse 13 and 15, we're still in Exodus 16, this is what he says. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around that camp. And when the dew had gone, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is the bread that God said he would provide. He has given it to you to eat. This heavenly bread, as we come to understand later on, is called manna. 
The definition of the word manna uh, in Hebrew comes from the question they asked when they saw it. Manna literally means, what is it? What is it? And in verse 31, we are told it was like coriander seed and tasted like wafers with honey. Specific instructions are given for gathering this bread. They have to get up early because it melts when the sun is fully up. And they were told not to keep any of it over until the next day. They weren't allowed to hoard it and take on more to sustain them into the next day. Some tried to do that, but it spoiled and it actually bred worms. It was not something you could collect and hoard for days or for the week. It was enough only for that day and that day alone. That was the way God had ordained it. And God was trying to help them work out some of their spiritual muscles. It was not a punishment, though there was some element of that in this situation because of their grumbling. But it was meant to be a daily routine for them, not only as a sign of God's provision and goodness to them, but it was also a reminder and a lesson that they could trust him and should because he was doing this for them daily, every morning for the next 40 years, God maintained this provision for them. 40 years of their wilderness journey to the promised land, this is what they ate every morning. And when you get to Joshua, when they finally make it to the promised land, we are told in chapter 5, verse 12, that the manna actually stops and they could finally eat from the long-awaited provisions of the promised land. It was like, finally, no more manna. We can finally eat some real food once again. I want to note something, though, here before we move on uh, to some of the other things I want to say. But I wanted to note this. How quickly does the heart shift when our wants trump what we actually need. How quickly does the heart shift when our wants trump what we actually need? Look back at, at 16 verse 3. If you can go back to that, look at that quickly. The assembly was so focused on their hunger, they have the audacity to say, it would have been better for God to kill us in Egypt where we sat by the meat pots and had our fill of bread. But instead... We are out here in the wilderness, about to die of starvation. What a huge, massive slap to the face of God. Did they forget the horrors of Egypt? The children murdered, the beatings and the arduous labor. Surely they remember the hardship. Is that what they are longing to go back to? Nothing good came from that. It was not a good period of history for God's people. How true is this for us? For us today, so many of us have given uh, our lives to Christ and after doing so, having been set free from the grip of sin and death, wrestle with that same desire to go back to Egypt. Forgetting what it was that we were truly set free from. Yet we go back to wells that don't satisfy the longings of our hearts and spiritually speaking, eat food that spoils the money, the sex, the storing up of earthly treasures, the things we think will make us happy, that bring us satisfaction. For a moment, we may feel satisfied, but only for a moment. These many satisfactions are fleeting. The sins we consistently return to always leave us wanting more. And like Israel, on multiple occasions, we find ourselves too saying or thinking audacious things like, I wish I was back in Egypt. Egypt represents bondage. 
oppression, sin, and death. Why go back? Why even bring it up? Why does the heart long for these things? The lesson Israel teaches us, just in this small portion, is that unless we find ourselves not only fully surrendered to God, but fully trusting in Him, in His faithfulness, in His goodness and provision for our lives, we will always find ourselves complaining about what we are not getting, what we are missing out on. And unless our heart, which according to Jeremiah 17 verse 9, is deceitful above all things, the heart is deceitful above all things, unless that heart is transformed and surrendered to Christ, we will continue to long after our heart's desires that lead us away from God. They will lead us after things that cannot satisfy. They will lead us to drink from wells that will never quench our thirst. We can't go back. When we ask God for things and we don't receive them or get what we expected, like manna, we say, what is this? This isn't what I asked for. It is a false belief, church, a false belief to think that God is holding out on us. When we make requests, when we lift up our prayers, to think that he is holding out on us because we don't get exactly what we asked for. God is not holding out on us. He knows deep down what we truly need and long for, and it never comes from going back from where we were. It comes from a life that trusts in the faithfulness of our Creator, who shaped us, formed us by His hand, and knows exactly what we need and when we need it. In His timing, He knows exactly what we need and when we need it. Because you see, if we had our way, if we put ourselves in this same story as Israel, we would long to rush that journey. Why would I want to wait and wander around in a wilderness for 40 years? Let's hit fast forward, get to the promised land, and not learn anything along that journey. We would rush the whole process, forgetting that along the way, God uses that time together with his people to show them who he is, his glory, his character, his deep, everlasting love for them, for us. Jesus' words in John 4.14 remind us that the water he offers, when we drink of that life-giving water, we never thirst again. Nothing in this world compares. It pales in comparison to the life everlasting, the water that Jesus gives us, like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Why then should we look back? Speaking of looking back, it is not always a negative experience. Sometimes we do, in fact, need to take a look back at the points in our lives where God has shown up, where God has been faithful to serve as a point of reference in the here and now in our lives presently that he can and does and will do it again. That God isn't just a one-trick pony or does this one thing for us and that's it. When we look at God's faithfulness throughout our lives, throughout Israel's history, we see it consistently over and over again. He has never left them, never forsaken them, consistently responding to their needs and to their plights, and in turn provides for their needs. Sometimes, yes, they have to go through some hardship, but God always brings them back. When you get to Deuteronomy Uh, Israel at this point is not too far away now from the promised land, maybe a year and a bit away. 
And Moses spends portions of this book actually doing some reflection. He's bringing the people and saying, hey, let's look back on the last 40 years of our time together and talk about that for a little bit. He's trying to help the people of God not only learn from their mistakes, but to help them understand what it means to obediently serve and follow the Lord faithfully. Here's all of the areas where we have fell short, where we failed miserably. How can we learn from these mistakes and in turn strive to be more obedient to the God who not only set us free from the grip of Egypt, but continues to provide and pave new ways? God was faithful for for the whole journey. And when we get to chapter 8, he recapitulates some important moments in their 40-year history since that departure from Egypt. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, this is what Moses is telling. He's talking to the people of Israel and he says this, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Forty years is a long, long time. And Moses is asking the people to look back a long ways. Do you remember those early days when we were out of Egypt. Do you remember what that was like? Look how far we've come. But for everything on their journey that he could have chosen to focus on, he highlights manna. It was a hard lesson and way to live, to be sure. I mean, when you look look at our current life right now, we kind of have an abundance of choice of the things we get to eat day to day. Some may be more than others. But these people ate manna for 40 years. Every day. Each morning, the same routine. But when you look back on their story, where manna began with hunger, you get to Numbers chapter 11, and we begin to see that some of the people in Israel's camp rose up and began to complain because they were so sick of manna and wanted meat. You can read that account for yourself, Numbers 11. Uh, But it was another moment of complacency for them. Because on the one hand, they were sick and tired of God's abundant provision of manna. And yet on the other hand, they were disgruntled because they wanted more of what God was giving to them. Four things uh, out of this passage that I want to highlight as we wrap up our time this morning. The first thing is this. First, Moses tells them in verse 2 to remember the whole way. It's a call to think back not solely on their failures, though that's important, but to just stop and see how many times over and over and over again when God showed up and provided, protected, and prospered them as a people. His hand was over them the entire way. Yet at many points, their failures served as a reminder to later generations and to even us about what it means to follow God, to understand what it means to be his people. How about you when you find yourself 
frustrated, complacent. I'm part of this too. When I find myself frustrated and complacent, do you find yourself looking back at all that went wrong? All the times you didn't get what you thought you really needed, or even to further that, all the things you thought you deserved. Or perhaps we can look back and reflect on all the times that God showed up and met the needs, each one of them. And sometimes he even met them beyond what we even asked for or even anticipated. I remember my last year of university, this would have been about uh, 2014 in the spring. And uh, I desperately at this period was needing to get my internship finished. I needed to find a church that would take me on and uh, allow me to be their intern for a period so I can get that last credit in order for me to graduate. And if I couldn't find somewhere to land, I was worried that I might have had to stay, uh, in all honesty, uh, another unwanted year in Toronto. I didn't want to be there anymore. And I was hoping to intern in the spring or summer uh, and be done somewhere around December and come back home to Ottawa for good. Fall was coming up and nothing was working out the way that I was hoping it would. I had a few churches that I talked to and things just weren't lining up uh, positively. And I was dreading staying potentially another year. I think it was around that time in August of of 2014 or somewhere thereabouts where I found out that our previous youth pastor who used to serve here uh, was departing. And some people back home sent me messages or called me and said, hey, you should should apply. You should look into uh, seeing if you can do that internship here at Eastgate. See what happens. As my fall semester wrapped up in December and throughout that term, uh, we were in talks with with the church. I was talking with the leadership here and seeing how this would work out. Um, But as the fall semester wrapped out, it just so worked out that I was accepted to be here as the intern uh, at the church. And I was super thankful. And because of that, I came back to Ottawa. And by January, I started my internship. I was still thinking about what's going to happen after this. It was only going to be about four months and uh, I was just like, hey, after this internship is done, where, where God are you leading? I was still thinking about the next steps. But before the internship uh, ended, before it even got to that point, uh, discussions about my being hired uh, on full-time began to take place. And before I could even worry about those next steps that I was starting to begin uh, wrestling with and thinking about and asking God, what do you want of me? Uh, those next steps after interviews and deliberations, it just kind of flowed in. I was hired on full-time. It was kind of a whirlwind four months. But God had orchestrated everything from the moment I left Ottawa back in 2010 to the time I came back in 2015. And when I think about that time over those four some odd years, four plus years or whatever, uh, I am reminded of that passage in Proverbs uh, 16.9. And this is what it says. The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. I mean, I had all these things that I wanted to do, and God came along and said, we're going to go this way. And it worked out, and it's beautiful and amazing, and I'm glad it worked out the way it did. No complaints here. But I had plans, and God said, these are the established steps that I am paving for you. He shifts plans, paves new roads, leads us to places we didn't think about or anticipate going. And it gives me a peace about where he leads me from these days onward. Because I know wherever he brings me is not only just for my good, but for the good of his glory. Because he had done it before, and he will continue to do it. It's important to retain those moments and remind ourselves how God has been active in our lives. Whether we think it was a positive experience or negative, 
both are moments where God is intersecting with us and trying to speak, teach, grow us, shape us, mold us, stretch us. So that first part is, is this idea of remembering the whole way. The second uh, thing that I want to highlight uh, is in verse 2 where it says, these 40 years were meant to humble them. I mean, that's a hard thing to hear, to be told that God knew sort of your, your attitude and your posture and the whole purpose, part of the whole purpose anyways, was to say that was to humble you. The consistent disobedience chasing after other gods and idols was a constant attempt at maintaining some sense of control and independence apart from God. They wanted God, but at a distance. They called on him when they needed stuff. But other than that, that's the, that's the aspect of the relationship. And all throughout, God is giving specific instructions. And sometimes they obeyed. But more often than not, other times they kind of half-heartedly approached the instruction or command, made the attempt or barely made the attempt, and failed. They couldn't fully surrender and completely trust what God was doing, where God was leading, and what he was trying to speak into their lives about. They couldn't surrender it. And their hearts consistently led them astray. They did what they felt like doing. Moses is gone. Let's build a golden calf. They whined. They complained. And it was that lack of humility that caused that generation to be told by God, you will not see the promised land. Because of your unfaithfulness and your stubbornness, you will not get to taste and see what I promised. Pride got the best of them. Both First, uh, first Peter 5.5 5 and James uh, 4.6 both tell us on, in their own context that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. First Peter 5.5, 5, even just a little bit before that, says that we are to clothe ourselves with humility. As if to say, like an outfit, humility ought to be the brand that we wear. That when people look at us, kind of like when you walk around with Adidas or any other brand, to sit there and say, whoa, his brand is humility. Her brand is humility. Clothing that idea of our lives with, a, with this appearance, this gesture, this posture of humility. Man, if I could go back to my high school days and just slap my younger self. All the times I argued, all the times I offended people with strong opinions, foolish talk, and just plain stupidity. And for what? Oh, it was awful. There was nothing to be gained. Foolishness. Pride pushes people away, puts people down, puffs us up, and makes us think we're something more than we really are. Thankfully, in my story, I had some good friends who were around in my life at the time to knock some sense into me to speak words into my life to say, maybe that's not the best approach. Maybe you need to shift your attitude or your opinion on these things. It's something we all wrestle with in some capacity. But it takes humility. It takes humility to recognize our failures and seek reconciliation. To seek reconciliation with others, with God, especially those whom we have hurt or offended, especially God, Pride digs in its heels and refuses. It absolutely refuses to admit fault, refuses to lose the argument, refuses to give up fighting in all of the most negative ways. Humility paves the way for restoration and peace. 
It also takes humility to realize our own limitations. We can't do everything. We can't be everything. We can't know everything. We are finite beings with finite capacities. This is especially difficult for us because as human beings, we want control. We want to be able to dictate or determine the outcome of all we do. But we can't. And it's hard to trust in God when we put all of our trust in ourselves and consistently find that we are falling short or falling flat on our faces because of something we did, something we said, and pride gets the best of us. Proverbs 16, verse 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty or arrogant spirit before a fall. God is looking for those who will humble themselves willingly to count others better than themselves, to relinquish trying to control everything and just trust. To just trust that the things he's wanting to do with us and for us are for our good relinquish the control. The third thing uh, that Moses addresses is testing the heart. In verse 2, he says that their time in the wilderness was also a time for testing to know what was in your heart. As God was looking for the next king of Israel, uh, he had appointed Samuel to go uh, to the sons of Jesse, to go to Jesse, line up the, the boys and find the one that would be the next king. And as Samuel is going along, uh, he comes upon Eliab, and he thinks, surely Eliab, with his posture, stature, the way he looked, whatever it was, something with Samuel thought, surely this is going to be the next king of Israel. He was looking at things like his stature, his strength, his outward appearance. But in 1 Samuel, verse 16, 7, God tells him he's not the one. And the Lord actually further says that the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. While we all put on our best self and show the world, our friends, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we have it all together, God looks within the deep recesses of our hearts and sees all the things that no one will ever know about. The deep secrets kept, our every thought, our every temptation that we wrestle with, every idol that sits on the throne of our lives instead of Christ, whose very life bought us back from sin and death. He sees it all. And as God attempted to do with Israel, he does so with us and with the church. Each day we come face to face with the same question that Joshua posed to the people of Israel. Because Joshua knew the hardships of a stiff-necked people who although experienced and benefited from God's provisions and faithfulness, still chased after other gods. We read about this in Joshua chapter 24 in in verses 14 and 15. This is what he says to the people. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your father served or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. No one can serve two masters. It's not possible. It's either one or the other. God will not resign himself to having only a portion of you. He wants you whole and not by force. He wants you to come wholeheartedly 
to him, willingly, not coerced. He tests our hearts to reveal our facade. Do you love me or do you love these things? Do you truly love me or do you love that these things are in your life, the provisions that are for you, the lifestyle that you get to keep up? Do you love me or do you love these? What idols have taken up residence in our hearts that aim to usurp God from his throne? I can't answer that question for you. But like Joshua, the same thing needs to be said. Choose this day whom you will serve. Will you serve the deep things in your heart that no one knows about that lead you from God? Or will you give that up and choose this day to serve the Lord and allow him to sit on the throne of your life? And finally, uh, he reminds them that manna was never intended to be the thing that saved them. It wasn't the ultimate salvation. And sure, they knew that. They grumbled against it often. They relied on that bread, though, every day. But here Moses is reminding them that while the bread came, it was because it was by the mouth and provision of the Lord. We live by every word that comes from the Lord, he tells them. There was nothing they did to earn it except that God in his grace was trying to take care of the people he loved. Later on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, you find Jesus. He has just fed the 5,000, an amazing, miraculous event. And after that, the crowd is sort of pressing in and asking him questions and asking for more signs. And they ask him to, to do a sign and give them a reason to believe. And they point back to the time where their fathers ate manna from heaven as a sign. They use this as a sign saying, we, we, our forefathers, had this as a sign to them. So what can you possibly do, Jesus? What is your sign? And Jesus goes on to tell them that God has actually sent the true bread of heaven. They don't know it. They don't recognize it. The bread is he who has come down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they respond to him saying, give us this bread. Give us this bread always. We want this bread. It gives life. We want it. And Jesus then goes on to tell them in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus reveals himself as the true manna, not like the manna that spoils, but one that is everlasting and brings true life. And even after this statement, you find them similarly to when Israel in the wilderness saw the manna for the first time, they asked, what is this? And when Jesus began to reveal these things and said, I am the bread of life, Similarly, they asked a question, who is this? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? What is this? Is sort of their question, similar to Israel. The manna their forefathers ate didn't save them. They still died. The bread of life that Jesus offers is himself, and it leads to salvation. This is the daily bread we ought to seek after each day. Give us this daily bread. Jesus, give us more of yourself. Show us who you are for your kingdom's sake. Manna was a temporal blessing. The bread Jesus offers is eternal. And similarly today, each one of us has received a type of manna, a blessing from God, whether it's the food on the table, the clothes on our back, the roof over our heads, the job we have, or the blessings we have received in all sorts of ways. God is still providing manna for his people. Sure, it looks different, but we mustn't forget that the manna is not the full blessing. The real blessing is that upon believing in Jesus Christ, we get to take part in the manna that brings everlasting life. 
Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose again is our bread of heaven. He is all we need. The manna simply just points us back to him and reminds us that God is taking care of his people, that he is providing for them. Church, in this season of uncertainty, we might not be able to go back to the way it was, or at least the way we think it should be. Maybe this is a time to really look forward, not behind To press on towards the goal that lies ahead. God has shifted our world and he is doing new things. Digging new wells. Providing manna for his people in all sorts of ways. Calling new believers into the kingdom. Despite all that's actually going on. He is still working. And if he is doing a new thing, we can't go back to the good old days. The manna of yesterday will not supply our need for today. We can't hoard it for tomorrow or attend a service once a week and ride that wave for however long we think we can. We need Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit afresh in our lives daily to give us that daily bread. Our wilderness wandering on this side of heaven until we reach the promised land that God has promised to us has been a time of testing on our hearts as well. He is using this time the same way that he did it with Israel in the wilderness to test our hearts. The idols in our lives, church, need to be dealt with. We can't keep putting it off and saying, I'll deal with that later. I'll get to it someday. Sex, pornography, lust, pride, affluence, performance-based spirituality. Some of those things definitely need to go but some also just need to be put in their proper place. Cast them away. It doesn't satisfy. It doesn't. Do whatever you need to do in order to throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Church, we can't run the race that is set before us if our feet keep getting caught constantly in the traps of sin and self. The race, while difficult and hard and long and sometimes might feel like a burden, This race leads to some amazing places along the way. But we might not be able to embark on those opportunities if we continue to remain caught and can't fully step into the areas where God is trying to lead us. Jesus, set us free. Help us to run our race. We need our daily bread. We need it. We can't put it off. Not our attempted efforts at still trying to be in control when this passes will work. When this is all done, we can't still strive and vie for control. To come out on the other side of this and to simply say, well, let's just go back to the way it was, is in a way saying the same thing Israel longed for. If only we could go back to Egypt, where we seek to take care of our own needs, our own wants, our own desires, continuing to forget or ignoring those around us who have been asking for our help for a long, long time. Church, I think God is using this time to say, what about them? You've looked after yourselves long enough. What about them? This season is an opportunity to draw near to God in ways that were much more difficult before because we were so busy 
busy with programs, busy running around, busy doing all sorts of things, busy with school, you name it. Things are paused, and God is calling us back to himself, drawing us into a deeper walk with himself, a newfound focus and realization that for far too long here in the West, we have loved the blessings of manna, but not the manna giver. We have loved the blessings of the manna, but not the manna giver. We have forsaken our first love. And he has stripped things down and stripped things away so that we can begin to see him in the way he wants us to. To love him the way he longs for us to. So with eyes forward, can we ask the question afresh and embark on the adventure when that answer comes, whenever it should arrive. God, where are you leading me? God, as head of this church, where are you leading us? Lord, show us how to follow you obediently. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.